All right, Ashley, if you want to go ahead and get started, let me know and we can go ahead and, and proceed. Yes, ma'am, that's fine with me if you guys are ready to go, and I'm pretty sure people will dial in as uh, we move forward, so you can, the floor is yours. Okay. All right, well, hey, Nick, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to call in. Um, as you may know, um, I'm standing here with five of our unmanned aircraft systems operators. Um, we have we have um, a warrant. We have two warrant officers, and we have three other soldiers who are going to talk to you today about their particular roles, um, training, instruction that they've had to do, um, in in being able to um, work with their UAS aircraft, um, as well as their capabilities on the battlefield and how it's integrated into the overall Army aviation narrative. Um, to get started, we have three who are going to do a quick um, elevator story, if you will, to talk to their experience thus far with their aircraft before we open it up for questions. So with that being said, I'm going to open up the floor to WO1 Michael R. Gray with the Louisiana Air National Guard. Sir, floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, guys. Uh, my name is Mike Gray. I'm a W1. I'm an operations officer with the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program in the state of Louisiana. Uh, I've been flying Shadow since uh, 2008. Before that, I was in, in manned aircraft, U-860s and uh, Hueys and, uh, and such. Uh, currently, we're, um, we're working on a new flight facility at Fort Polk uh, to uh, begin flight operations there in this, this summer. Um, and uh, one of the primary things I, I guess I like about UAS that I got into it for was the uh, overall, it's a, it's a really unique program that you, that you, you, you keep you have so much technology that's wrapped around this thing, and uh, you work with a lot of people and that do many different things, and that's one of the things I really like about the program. That's why I, I, I pretty much got into it. All right, thank you, sir. We're going to move it all next to um, Staff Sergeant Catalina Avalos. Go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Staff Sergeant Catalina Avalos. I'm here representing Washington Army National Guard. I graduated uh, UAS school in 2008. Uh, shortly after I graduated, I deployed to Iraq. Um, our platoon did very well. We got over 1,800 hours. Um, I love what the mission does for UAS on ground, uh, for the ground soldiers. Um, this MOIS gives me and the rest of my platoon instant gratification. Um, I'm dual had it for Washington Army National Guard. I'm not only the UAV readiness NCO on a full-time basis, but I'm also the platoon sergeant. All right, thank you. And next we'll have Specialist Youngsma. How's it going, everybody? Uh, my name is Specialist Kyle Youngsma. I'm out of uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. I'm with 2nd Brigade. I've got about two, 200 hours training. I haven't deployed yet, so all my flight time is always training and figuring out ways to implement it in the ground fight. All right, thank you. Like I said, those are just three um, snapshots of, of, our, of our highly trained UAS operators who are here on the ground in Nashville. We do have two others who are ready to, to jump in with their experiences as well um, from recent deployments. So with that being said, I'm going to open up with the first questions before we go to you, Nick and Scott, and, and go from there. So operators. We all understand that training is such an important part of this mission, and especially with the role of unmanned aircraft systems um, now at, you know, integrated into the Army aviation battle space, the use of technology and, and being able to remote control. Do you feel that, that, um, that you had experience with that before, that it transitioned into this field, or 
what was it overall? What was the training? Did you find it more difficult um, with with how technology has progressed so so fast? Uh, this is uh, Mr. Gray. Uh, yeah, the technology as it progresses, it makes the systems actually easier to fly. Um, one of the neat things, though, is you take technology from the civilian side, you integrate it in in a commercial off-the-shelf environment in UAS, it actually makes them easier to maintain and easier to fly. So some of that does transfer over, uh, particularly, I guess you would say, the video game, the video game generation. Uh, it's actually, it, it does it does transfer over some, somewhat. Mr. Kozelski from Louisiana. Uh, I find that the Xbox crowd does seem to have a uh, easier time picking up some of the maneuvers with the aircraft, but uh, if you uh, don't have that background, I made it through and uh, I did quite well. So uh, I do find that it is a younger crowd that, that picks it up a little quicker, though. All right. Well, with that being said, we'll, we'll open it up. Um, Scott, I'll go to you first. Um, any questions you have for our operators here today? Sure. I'm going to start with a technical question at the small end, the uh, the Raven Puma end. So um, this may be for Sergeant sure. Harris. I'm not sure. Um, if he could talk a little bit about the differences of capabilities in those two aircraft. I believe one has a gimbaled camera. One does not currently have that. If he could talk a little bit about the differences between Raven and Puma and what those bring to the warfighter. I got gotcha. you. Um, the uh, the Raven is definitely the smaller of the two. It weighs in about four to five pounds. Um, it has a two stationary cameras uh, in a they're uh, color cameras. They one's forward facing, and one's side facing, um, as opposed to the Puma, which has a gimbal payload, which has uh, EO and IR, infrared, and of course the uh, the day camera. Sure. Um, and that one, of course, is about three times the size, just uh, about 13 or so pounds. Um, they're both hand-launched, so that's the same thing. However, there is technique to both, being the fact that one's larger, one's smaller. And uh, the Raven one, uh, from my personal experience being deployed, uh, I used it in Afghanistan before I got a chance to even train on the Puma, which I got in-country training as well. And uh, that one is definitely a lot more, uh, it, since it is smaller, you could toss it in a pack, and you and your, uh, your counterpart and crew and can go out and walk with the patrol, which I had to do a few times. Um, you know, pull it out, put it together, get it, you know, get my uh, airspace approved and uh, toss it up and go. Uh, a lot of times, I, I, like I said, I used that, uh, say if we were going up a mountain and we didn't know what was on the other side or on the top, I'd toss it up, do a quick uh, area recon ahead of the patrol and uh, check everything out, let the platoon sergeant platoon leader know what's going on and uh, bring it back, land it, and then do my job because I'm an infantryman first, but I also um, fly the uh, small UAVs. As for the Puma, I use that um, as, from a stationary position. I use that from uh, observation posts. Uh, we had uh, two of them set up near our FOB, and with the uh, Puma system, you can you can push it out to 20 kilometers uh, line of sight with the, uh, the RF antenna we use. And uh, I was able to fly it from I was already sitting at around 4,500 feet above sea level, and we were down a valley, so we, I could talk, I can go that whole 20 kilometers perfect because I was in the valley and all that. Um, because it is a larger system, it's uh, more you're you can pack it, but it is it's a beast to carry around, especially with the extra batteries and the weight. Um, so I would mainly use it. Uh, the, the times I did use it while I was out on patrol, I would uh, stay with the uh, the vehicles while the dismounted uh, platoon I was in 
they, they walked out and I would uh, provide overwatch from the air uh, locally as opposed to using the uh, shadow or the, uh, the larger uh, uh, UAVs. Excellent. Uh, and I've also used it uh, around the FOB as well, uh, doing uh, FOB security, you know, whether I'm looking inside the FOB for what's going on or outside the, uh, the walls. Thank you. No problem. Okay, thanks, Scott. We'll, we'll go to Nick. Nick, you're up. Okay, I have a, a little bit more general question here, although it, it gets at what um, a little bit about what uh, the gentleman was talking about before. Uh, we, you know, we have a, a in, the, in the media, I guess, um, you know, Air Force uh, combat operations with drones, or what generally is is uh, is written about. And I'm wondering if uh, some of the participants could talk about. Uh, you know, a, a typical combat engagement, or uh, you know, or or one combat engagement that they've uh, been in, where they've they've used their uh, UAS system in an engagement with hostile forces. Exactly how it's implemented, uh, how it's used, where it's uh, it, it's placed in the kill chain, that type of thing. This is Staff Sergeant Avalos from Washington. Um, our direct support that we provided while we were in country, it was um, assisting raids. We would go prior to do site recon to let the uh, special forces know what we were observing from the air. Um, we also integrated with manned aviation, letting know where there were uh, good landing sites so that um, they wouldn't have any conflict when we were down there. Once the um, once the battle started, we were we were able to give um, feedback on if anybody was leaving the area, do a battle damage assessment, um, and it's it is very important because we're providing oversight to the commander that's not on ground, so that he can see you know and direct his troops that are on ground and with also manned aviation. Mr. Kozowski from Louisiana, um, what? Uh Sergeant Avalos was saying is very much correct. And also, it's basically the eyes in the sky uh, that provides real-time situational awareness of what's going on uh, for that commander to be able to make that decision that'll uh, basically be able to save lives. Thank you. This is Sergeant Harris. Uh, from my personal experience, uh, I actually did get a chance to use it a few times, in particular calling for a fire, being able to observe uh, rounds impacting ahead of my uh, my patrol. I was, again, I was stationary. I was using the Puma system, and uh, with the with the telemetry I could pull from uh, the pictures we take with it, I was able to give uh, my higher up on the ground, my platoon sergeant, my platoon leader, you know, tell them exactly what's going on. So we we were in a tactical environment. We used this tactically. So being there ahead of the the patrol. Uh, seeing what was going to be set up, we were going to be set up for an IED ambush, IED initiated ambush. Um, I was able to make the call, let them know that uh, we can call for fire on this target. I will observe rounds, and uh, with the accuracy of, of what we have with these systems, uh, we were able to uh, defeat the threat before we even had a chance to uh, get engaged. So I could have I potentially could have saved some lives, if not definitely uh, prevent some injury that way. Thank you. All right. Well, I, I didn't hear. Did anyone else join us on the line? Hearing none, um, 
Nick, we'll go back to you if you have okay. any follow-up questions. Sure. Um, you know, building off, off the, the last question, uh, you know, I'd appreciate if the participants could talk a little bit about uh, uh, the rules of engagement, um, specifically uh, in regard to uh, military-age males in the war zone. Um, you know, uh, you know, looking through the, uh, you know, the, the using the, the sensors and optics on these things. How how do you tell a, a civilian from a combatant, and and uh, uh, you know, what is the the ROE that you're you're dealing with with this uh, this type of equipment? I'm just going to put out, uh, this is Dastar and Alice, I'm just going to put out a general statement out there. As UAS operators, we're not trained to identify, uh, make any decisions or make any calls. We're trained to uh, make an observation through our payload cameras and give that information to our higher-ups who then in return have intel analysts and have the intel section that will uh, define those, those, those questions that you have uh, who, are combat, who are combatants and who are civilians. Thank you. All right, Scott, we'll go back to you. Great. Um, I, I have, um, let's see, I've got a few here, but let me start. We'll go up to the higher end, the shadow end of the, the spectrum that we're, the operators are experienced with here today. I know the Marine Corps is weaponizing shadow, and the last I heard, the Army did not have that formal requirement yet, but are there any payloads that you wish you had in theater that that are not available to the Army yet? Anything you, you wish you could have done with any of your platforms? Uh, well, hey, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anderson. I'm the Shadow PM. So I, I think there's kind of two parts to your, your question. Your second part is the question to our participants more than it is to me. So if you want to address the issue of weaponization, I can talk that, but I think your real question was for our panel members to them about what you wish they what they wish they had seen in theater. So I think that, I'm right, correct? That that is correct. Hey, this is uh, Mr. Gray. As uh, far as uh, any type of weaponization in the aircraft, um, of course that's going to be decided higher up. But anytime we can shorten that, anytime we can shorten up what we call the kill chain, which is basically getting still on target, it's it's, it's always good. Um, you know, with a small, smaller platform like a Shadow, for example, you know, we're, we're going to want something that's very small, that's extremely accurate, and it's, it's easy to use. Plus, in uh, UAS, we like uh, things that are universal, stuff that we can put on multiple platforms so that, uh, one, it shortens your procurement cycle, and two, it's easier for us to maintain and keep in, in, in the system so that we can use across the, the entire UAS spectrum or across multiple systems. Check. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, uh... Scott, this is Sophia Bledsoe. We can put you in touch with Lieutenant Colonel Anderson later on to address that specific question if you uh, on the on the um, weaponization of the shadow, if you like. Excellent. I'll follow up with you on a couple of issues, Sophia. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And Scott, you can get an additional question. You can answer. You can ask that now. Great. Uh, again, this is a follow-up for Sergeant Harris. Uh, you spoke of going out on an infantry patrol. Um, you know, putting the Raven together, getting permission. Um, clearance, how long does that process take for you to get well, that clearance? The clearance, uh, I try to pre I pre-plan it uh, the, the team lead. I, myself, especially, are actually my company's uh, uh, UA, small UAS team. 
we're actually going to be deploying here shortly. We will pre-plan the uh, the restricted operating zone we're going to be using uh, by time and, and uh, elevation, and before we even go out on patrol, usually within uh, 24 to 48 hours. So there, there is deconfliction already. Um, so you know, once we get on patrol where we need to be, I can call up on the radio. Hey, this restricting this is you know my call sign. We're, this is our restricted operating zone. You know, Puma. We're going to be flying. You know, we need to start it now, and uh, we usually have that all set up uh, for the putting together the vehicle and whatnot. A lot of the time, um, the, the the Raven is really quick and easy. Maybe two minutes to put the vehicle together. Um, the the other part is because it's a it's a, a controller system with a, a laptop, and uh, that takes a little bit longer, about uh, five to ten minutes, give or take. Um, and uh, we can usually do that if we take a quick, a short halt. We could probably get it up in the air uh, with a pre-flight within 10, 12 minutes, maybe you know, 15 at the most. Excellent. Thank you. No problem. A uh, question for for operators here: As you go through training and as you're working on different aircraft, what do you find to be the most, um, the easiest part of working with UAS systems, and what do you find to be the most challenging? thing in uh, unmanned aircraft systems, it's actually counter, it's really counterintuitive, is actually flying the aircraft. Flying the aircraft is actually the easiest part of what we do. The, um, the most difficult thing in UAS is actually integration. Airspace and putting together, and putting together flight plans and putting together um, uh, target lists, so on and so forth, working with your, with your higher headquarters. Getting the system at the right place at the right time, that's actually probably the most difficult thing that we do. It's our hair side grease. It's all the way down. Just trying to work with everybody. Everything right. And continuing on, Mr. Gray again. The system, when you go down range, the system, um, the, whatever system you're flying, it becomes almost habitual. Uh, commanders want that, that, they want that vision. They want to see the future. They want to see out beyond the horizon. And they, they become almost dependent upon the system. So it's very difficult for them to, uh, once they get it, to live without it. This is Mr. Kozelski. Uh, I'll second that. Also, the uh, a lot of the actual use of UAS is uh, your commanders that you work for is explaining to them and making them understand the capabilities of the aircraft. That's a major part of this also. Um, some are more uh, susceptible to what they hear more than what they've read, and uh, when you actually sit down and give them a capabilities brief, they're pretty amazed at what you can and what you can't do. Another one for, for the group, could you talk about a particular experience, I know you've shared you know, already, but a particular experience where you realize how important the capability that you have as a UAS operator played into a particular mission? This is Tassar Navos. I, I don't have a particular mission to talk about, but um, one of the things that we encounter being uh, downrange in Iraq is uh, the visibility that we have and the importance of what UAS does. Most commanders don't want to leave, uh, don't want the soldiers to leave the fob without any UAS oversight over them. Yeah, uh, Mr. Gray. Again, no specific missions that I can think of right off the right off the, right off the top of my head, but 
when you're flying downrange, in any given day, you can have so many different mission sets. Um, you can start out in the morning doing a counter IED mission, uh, which is where we go out and find improvised explosive devices or uh, personnel trying to plant them. And by the end of the day, you're out counting camels. Um, there's there's so many different mission sets that you can perform with the aircraft, and that's one of the unique things about all of the UAS platforms, from the smallest all the way up to Gray Eagle, is um, the huge amount of missions that you can perform with the aircraft. Mr. Kozelski, uh also, you'll find that you may be on a specific uh, a task at hand, but you'll be redirected as as the day goes on. As your mission dictates, you may get two or three different calls to do uh, anything from, you know, convoy security to counter IED. It, uh, it changes continually, so you, you pretty much have to keep your head on a swivel. So, Staff Sergeant Owls, and I just want to add to that, and I think that just um, is for the bigger uh, airframes, just because we have more endurance up in the air, Six hours versus, you know, the smaller UAV. Yeah. Right, I'm going to go back to you guys um, for the last round of questions. Nick, is there any um, last-minute questions that you have that we can sure. help? Sure. I'd like to ask the participants who've been, uh, well, actually, all of them maybe, uh, what the most significant development or improvement in uh, Army UAS operations uh, that they've seen over the time that they've they've been uh, flying the aircraft, and also um, the foremost uh, either shortcoming or an area where they they think improvements needed. Uh, this is Mr. Gray. Probably in the shadow system, it's uh, the increased endurance uh, for the shadow. Uh, one of the things that that allows us to do is it really helps with manpower. And along with that, it also helps with the fact that we can go out and fly nine hours now versus what we could before. So it, it actually helps us out a lot. Uh, as far as the, if I understood correctly, the a, a near-term change? Um, yes. Um, TCDL, the Tactical Common Data Link, and the Universal the universal Shelters, which uh, provide us the capability to uh, uh, potentially in the future fly uh, multiple aircraft from the, the same basic type of system so that we're not inter we're not changing things around. The software all looks the same and all interfaces the same. So flying from a shelter, depending upon what aircraft you're flying, it's almost transparent. It's almost uh, it's almost like an app on an iPad on an iPad. Thank you. I uh sorry Harris, I got one up. With the uh, biggest thing I've, I've found is uh, going from the Raven to the uh, Puma system, it's larger, but it's definitely more uh, diverse with the gimbal payload. Um, you don't have to swap. We have, with the Raven, you have to swap payloads to do night uh, flights. With the uh, Puma, it's all environment, you know, which would be, you know, day, night, in the rain, you know, some inclement weather even. And uh, that's definitely the biggest advantage. Granted, it's a little bit larger, but uh, it pays off in dividends. Um, the the improvement, I guess you could say, um, it's the acceptance of the smaller UAVs because we're the we're we're kind of the low man on the totem pole, um, where you have you know shadow and above, so it's you know trying to get integrated a little bit better. It's it's coming along. We are definitely since uh, there's been a lot more training going on uh, with our brigade in general. We took all of our slots uh, for any and all. Uh, small UAV training before we're deploying here shortly, and uh, so we're going to, from what I understand, we're going to be probably the, the most capable small UAS uh, unit going to be deploying. So it's it's definitely uh, coming along. 
This is uh, Major Poquette. I'm the APM from the Small UAS Product Office, and I just want to, uh, to tack on to what uh, Sergeant Harris just brought up. He said one of his favorite things about Puma, although it's you know a larger logistic trail, it's bigger, it's kind of a pain in the butt to carry around compared to Raven, is the fact that it has the gimbal payload. And one of the things that we're excited about here in the product office is that we're actually about to put uh, a gimbal payload uh, on the Raven. So while none of the soldiers have seen that yet, or they've only seen prototypes or models in the uh, booths out here, um, here with uh, sometime in late summer, we're going to field our first Raven gimbals. And what that's going to do is provide that capability to the soldier down to the man-portable level, you know, truly man-portable, which, which is what Raven is. Um, and when they throw that Raven up, um, even though it's a more complex system, it's actually much easier to fly. You're actually flying um, the, the current Raven without the gimbal. You're, you're flying the aircraft, and you have to point the camera by turning the aircraft. You have to switch back and forth between your forward look and your side look cameras. And it's a real skill to be able to do that. Uh, as we move to the gimbal payload, what you're going to tell the uh, camera to do is look at that vehicle and follow it. And the aircraft will fly itself in order to maintain contact, visual contact with that uh, target. Uh, so that's one of the new exciting developments within small UAS is bringing that capability down to the uh, Raven level. And, of course, uh, now you're going to have two aircraft with, uh, with basically the same capability, and Puma will maintain its, uh, its need in the fight uh, for the fact that it is all environment capable. It can land in the water. It has a lot of applications uh, for the maritime community. Uh, but it will also, because it's a bigger aircraft, you'll see uh, an, a move towards uh, increased endurance. So that's where Puma will maintain its uh, strong suit uh, as we bring that gimbal uh, ca uh, capability down to the Raven level. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now I forget. Is it we have Scott left or the Nick? I'm I'm good. Thank you. Scott's up. Okay. Are there any more questions on the line? Uh, this is um, you know it's. it's I'm not sure that anyone can answer this here, but maybe you can get back to me. I was just wondering um, about how many Army unmanned systems are, are in the air today in Afghanistan and, and about how many flight hours uh, per week. Um, we don't have the numbers, the exact numbers right at the top of my head. Flight hours? Okay, 1,404 aircraft are currently in theater. On flight hours, around... I mean, are you, are you asking about flight hours from the beginning, from the from 2001 or 2003 to now, or are you talking about per year or per month? Or I, I was really wondering about about how many per you know, uh, say month right now. But um, you know, whatever numbers you have would be be helpful. Okay. How about we just go ahead? Yeah. So. Anderson again for the shadow. So I have I have 16 systems in Afghanistan. I've got a system in Kuwait. I've got a system in Korea, and I've got an Australian system also in uh, uh, I've got an Australian system in Afghanistan. So that's currently the disposition of shadows globally, um, not including those that are that are, that are CONUS based. So for flight hours. Uh, so last year was our, our busiest year ever and in excess of 120,000 hours flown. So, you know, okay, just call it 10,000 hours a month for the shadow system. This, this is for shadow alone. For shadow, right. Okay. I could probably send you 
a uh, a document that is uh, releasable as far as far as flight hours are concerned, and that'll put everything in. You know, this is including all aircraft for years. That'd be great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay, well, to, to wrap up, I'm going to ask the operators um, if they have any specific closing remarks um, that they could talk to today. Basically, the uh, UAS uh, systems are saving lives every day. They're providing real-time imagery. Instead of sending a human being out, uh, this is giving the commander the, uh, the opportunity to save lives by seeing what's behind that wall uh, on top of that roof. And uh, without it, I think we would, uh, we would be at a great loss. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, Specialist Youngsman. Um, the UAV in our aspect, being that we're infantry, we carry it with us. We're able to give a advanced notification on anything, being that we are fighting on the ground in front of everything. And so any kind of notification ahead of time that can help deter us from any kind of danger is definitely helpful. Sorry, Harris, this is a tactical tool. Um, we use this. Like like the like everybody else has said it all the way up that uh, we use this to save lives and to to get the bad guys what it is. Staff Sergeant Avalos, and I'd just like to interject on on everyone's comments here and just say that you know UAS is this is the leading edge of new technology and it's just getting bigger and. Um, I'm a passionate advocate of what I do, and I pass it on to soldiers and everyone out here. And for me, it's a self-instant gratification of what I do in the battlefield to save soldiers' lives. All right. Well, um, that about wraps up um, this roundtable. If you have any specific questions, um, we'll, we'll certainly put you in touch with the information that we told you as our, as our major do-outs. But Nick Scott, thank you so much for, for calling in. Um, really appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing some of the conversation. And, and with that being said, thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Thanks very much.